This week on Thingamabob. Oh no, how do I put the colors back? Yo, MTV Raps. Good for you, 12-year-old. Stay tuned for more. Baseball bats and gallon cowboy hats and more. Magic rings and other nerdy things in store. Listen on in, it's time for Thingamabob. Better tune in, it's time for Thingamabob. Thingamabob! Well, hello, Josh. Hello, Bree. Hello to everybody listening. And welcome to Thingamabob. This week's theme is the 80s. Yes, it's so funny because I was like, oh man, I should like know exactly what like the 80s were before i start this episode Uh but i never did that research so like the whole decade of the 80s (laughs) yeah just like you know pop culture and stuff like that that happened during that time because like sometimes i'm like oh that was the 80s and turns out it was like the 70s or the 90s yeah yeah i mean to be fair i think people who lived through the 80s probably don't know everything about that decade uh and we're because of the drugs (laughs) sure (laughs) (laughs) there's just so much to know you know, it was an iconic decade. It was truly. iconic. Yeah, we're too young to remember it. We're just so youthful. Yeah, <laughs> we never even saw the eighties. We didn't, but uh, we did learn a lot about the eighties this week. A couple things about couple the eighties this week. Yeah, it's also I want to mention before we go any further into the episode that this idea was suggested to us by two different people, wasn't it? To do. Um, what we are going to start doing, which oh. <laughs> is the first the first of every month we cover um, like two iconic things from a decade. So we're doing the 80s yes. this week because we've already done the 90s. And yes. instead of bouncing around out of order, we decided to just go backwards in time from the 1990s. <laughs> yes. Well, someone, Billy said, one of our friends said, mm-hmm. uh, oh man, I wish you guys would have done like a series where you just did like every decade of... Mm-hmm something or every recent decade and i was like oh yeah we didn't do that so we discussed it and we were like well it could make sense that we do it like the first of every month now as opposed to like be like actually we are gonna do every decade (laughs) so it's kind of like a little every first of the month we'll always know what we're doing yeah it's like best of both worlds we still get to do a decade series but it's not one after the other so we get to mix it up a do, little bit yeah do some other yeah do some other stuff yeah i'm excited and i'm glad that we get to start technically with the 80s because it was a really fun decade yeah to look at so many uh so many inventions <laughs> so many so many things that changed the world there were a lot of inventions yeah including stranger things that was invented in the 80s it was yeah it's actually a uh, a firm <laughs> relic of the yeah 80s. well there's time travel in it so it makes a lot of sense yeah yeah but brie yeah i want to know your rose of this week first okay i'll tell you my rose of the week my rose is that uh one of my very dear best loveliest friends um is getting married and she sent me a package this week to ask me to officially be one of her bridesmaids and it was very cute and very exciting um she sent me a little like jean jacket and some earrings and like a very lovely note that i cried to so (laughs) it was it was really really nice so it was definitely my rose 
Oh, I didn't realize that's what that was. That's so cute. Yeah, the that that Josh is referring to is the jean jacket that's in my closet. <laughs> We're in the closet, so I'm like almost <laughs> looking at it, but I'm not because actually we removed it from the closet. Anyway. Anyways, yes, yeah, she sent me actually, which her mom, we know Linda, um, hand painted yes. the design on the back of the jacket. It's cute. It is very cute. It looks cute. really cute. And it's like personal. And I don't think you saw this part, but the date of her wedding is on like the underside of the collar. Oh, no. So, I didn't see that. Yeah. If you like pop it up, it has her wedding date on it. It's very cute. Stop. I can yeah. foresee like the future photos of you. She's like, going to be like, bring your oh, jean jacket. Oh, she already told me. Yeah, totally. <laughs> talked 100%. on the phone and she already told me uh, the photo plans for the jackets. Yeah. This friend sadly does not listen to this podcast, but we love her <laughs> just the same. You know what? I don't think she does, which is funny. No, but it's okay. It's okay. She really is like my other best friend and she does not listen. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay though we love her anyways we we do yeah. podcasts aren't her thing they're not and that's okay that's okay yeah josh what was your rose my rose this week is my plant phil because <laughs> he um i got this plant and uh they said that it would grow white flowers mm-hmm. and i was hesitant of that information because i'm excited to try to keep a plant alive mm-hmm. i didn't want the expectation of there also being white flowers i had to wait for mm-hmm. so i didn't plan for these white flowers <laughs> and this morning randomly i was just looking at it and i saw a glimmer of little of white, white. Flower. <laughs> It's very vertical right now because it's growing out of a leaf. Mm-hmm. So it just looks like another leaf. It actually, mm-hmm. I thought a little more about it. It could just be another leaf. I don't Maybe. know. If, it does but the look leaves, white though. It's white. Exactly. None of the other leaves that are like like uh, new mm-hmm. are that white. Mm-hmm. And so they're just like lighter green. Yeah. So I'm excited that I might get a one first flower. <laughs> Even if it's not a flower, though, and it is just a new leaf, that's still, like, new growth, which means you're taking good care of your plant. To be able to grow more. Yeah. Meanwhile, I've killed every plant I've ever owned, including succulents. So. <laughs> <laughs> your your story is different, though, because the, like, most recent plants have been devastating because devastating. you've been listening to TikTok for your information on how to take care of these plants. No, I haven't. Yeah. you Didn't you say you got the, that, um, what is it? What? The green onion thing on TikTok. No, I didn't. No. None of that's from TikTok. <laughs> I'm pretty positive I you told me it was TikTok. Absolutely did not. I it was like an internet search. It was the internet, but it wasn't TikTok. I looked up how to mm. like save your green onion um stems because when you buy them they come with like the bulb and some roots attached. Mm-hmm. And I looked up how to save those, and the techniques that I used were from, like, good housekeeping or something on, on the internet. Okay, None so TikTok, TikTok is trustworthy, but good housekeeping is dead to you. Apparently. Yeah, I know. But even before that, I had succulents that I killed, and I don't know how that happened. So. <laughs> the green thumb. My eye is non-existent. I don't have one. Yeah, I also killed one of your plants. <laughs> To be fair, that is true. You did kill one of my plants. I killed I killed one of Bree's plants, yeah. Yeah. I'm like because I'm leaving, I'm like perhaps Phil maybe I should give to Billy because <laughs> then not because Bree kills plants, but because <laughs> I killed her plant and I can't expect her to take care of my plant. No, I would try my best, but given my history, I wouldn't trust me either. <laughs> 
It's funny because I feel I like give it I, to Aaron. I, I like seem like somebody who would have a green thumb. Yeah. And I really don't. I really don't. I don't know what. I just think you've had a series of bad luck. Like you Maybe. need like an easy to take care of plant. I did. Our friend uh, left town for like a month or two and I took care of his flowers and those did stay alive when I took care of those. See? So not everything has been a failure. Not but all is lost. The majority <laughs> has been a failure. <laughs> So, uh, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> on that same grim uh, topic, what was mm-hmm. your thorn of this week? <laughs> My thorn of the week is um, another lesson in failure, and it is about dating apps. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Not really. That's dramatic. I was just tying the two together. No, my my thorn is just dating apps in general because I don't meet anyone in real life anyways. We're in the middle of a pandemic right now, so I'm especially not meeting anyone. Um, And I have never, like, really had a ton of luck with apps anyways. And I deleted – I only had one. I had Hinge on my phone. And I deleted it, like, at the end of January, I think, because I was just so over it. Yeah. I was so over it. And so <laughs> I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. And then um, I got lonely again. So <laughs> I decided to re-download it. This week. Yeah, this week. And I have been I've been talking to a man. Um, but I feel like things always like start out fun and then they like very, very quickly peter off. And that's kind of what's happening here. Mm-hmm. Is at first I was like, oh, you're cute and funny. And then the conversation went like nowhere. And I feel like he didn't actually care to learn anything about me. Mm. And every time I'm like, hey, like this is what I'm doing today. Blah, 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 blah. What are you doing? And I give like an actual answer. He's like, just chilling. <laughs> like, okay. He's clearly not that, interested. That makes for great conversation. <laughs> nice. Just chilling. Awesome. Just chilling. Yeah. And I feel like that is always what happens. So that's my thorn of the week is dating. Yeah. <laughs> don't put yourself through that. I mean, I don't, I have no other way to meet people. So that's what we're uh, stuck with for now. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> my thorn this week. Mm-hmm. I didn't ask you. <laughs> I'm just saying. Oh, what's your thorn this week? My thorn this week is that I have to cater tomorrow. I don't need Bree to ask me to tell you guys that <laughs> catering tomorrow is going to be a lot. I'm a mm-hmm. working citizen. <laughs> and I'm not excited for it. It's my first catering gig back. Mm-hmm. And I haven't catered in a year. And I'm convinced that it's going to go bad. And With, if you're convinced you're by that yourself, it's... too. Yeah, so it's that's... a private party. <sighs> <laughs> So we'll see how that goes. Private parties yeah. are usually the worst because really? at least with events, you can kind of like you're you're dealing with event planners and people who understand how this kind of thing works. Right. It's an industry. Whereas private parties is rich people thinking they know what you mm. can do mm-hmm. <laughs> that maybe a year later you're incapable of doing. Mm-hmm. It also said light bartending. And I emailed my <laughs> uh, catering uh, owner. Uh-huh. And was like, hey, just so you know, um, I'm not a bartender, so what does light bartending mean? And he said, you just have to pour drinks. There's no actual knowledge uh, required. And I'm convinced that tomorrow they're going to expect like a half bartender. Mm-hmm. And so I'm a little nervous they're for gonna that They're going to try too. to make you, instead of just being like beer and wine, they're going to try to make you make cocktails. Yeah, well, they're going to say, hey, can you like make a couple cocktails? And mm-hmm. I'll, They're going to make it seem casual, and I'm going to be like... Yeah, if it's on the rocks, because <laughs> uh, 
I don't know what you mean. <laughs> I can make you a whiskey on the rocks. <laughs> I can make an old fashioned. I learned how to do that. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. That's I mean, you've all got I can like make. a handful. Not that you should, but you have a handful of drinks in your. Arsenal. I don't think I do. I mean, we may, we have uh, vodka gingers like <laughs> weekly with this podcast. Right, but the easy thing about a vodka ginger is it's vodka and ginger. So I know yeah. exactly what's in it. I know. That's there- what I mean is you can make like two ingredient cocktails. You can make yes. your own little list. And you're like, tonight <laughs> on the menu, we have beer, we have wine, and we have these three cocktails that I know how to make. And that is it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I give a proposal. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good idea, yeah. <laughs> or maybe they should hire a bartender. Maybe. Honestly, that's the better solution. It's the better but... solution, yeah. So I'm doing, like, all-around work for this. It's, like, handiwork for whatever mm-hmm. they need. That's mm-hmm. why it's only me. Extra work. I'll make money. It's fine. Yeah. I right? yeah. It'll be good. I purchased black catering pants for it. <laughs> so uh-huh. one hour of work went to a pair of pants oh, for the work. God. Because my pants ripped and I'm also too large for them now. Thank you, quarantine. <laughs> and that's all I have to say. Anyways, all let's right. go to the 80s let's... where <laughs> it was less tight clothes. I don't think that's true. Oh, is that true? It was all crop tops. It was all crop tops and, like, workout clothing. Well, exactly. So, yeah. like, so I can just... So all tight clothes, not less tight clothes. Right, but it's spandex, so... Oh, so it stretches. Fit, yeah. Okay. All right, well, let's go. <laughs> Uh, all right. <laughs> so for 80s this week, I picked the Rubik's Cube. A classic. It is a classic object. Very 80s, very fun. Mm-hmm. It blew up. Very so. math, you know. Very math, <laughs> very philosophy in a weird really? way. Yes, people wow. get into it. The Rubik's Cube. <laughs> So let me just describe it real quick. It Mm -hmm. is a seemingly simple three by three by three cube Mm. that has one color on all of its sides and it can rotate so that you can mix up all the colors and then resolve it. Wow. Which is interesting because it's like you are your own, like to your own detriment because Mm -hmm. the puzzles start solved. Mm-hmm. You mess it up to make it <laughs> solved again. There's the philosophy of it all. Yeah. I mean, that happened yesterday when I was babysitting. He had a fully completed puzzle. And I was like, do you want to do a puzzle? And he said, yeah. So we took the puzzle apart and then redid it. But he's four. So <laughs> <laughs> It was a Rubik's Cube, wasn't it? It was. It was a giant Rubik's Cube. Giant. Wow. No, it, it was it was a, a children's puzzle of dinosaurs. Oh. Anyway, (laughs) so with a seemingly simple cube, there are 43 quintillion different ways to arrange the squares. (laughs) That's the three by three by three math, sis, by six different colors. Oh, God. Yeah. Wow. And here's some more philosophy. Only one of them is correct. Wait, what? 43 quintillion different ways that the colors can be arranged and only one's correct. Isn't that just true for life? <laughs> <laughs> that seems that seems like it doesn't match up. <laughs> well, yes it does because Well, there's one if... solution. Or do you mean I'm thinking whatever that quintillion bedillion whatever number that you threw out mm-hmm. is that methods that you can get to the one correct answer? No, that is different like formations of oh, the squares. Oh, I yes. see. Okay, math was never my strong suit. Got it. And only and only one of them is the uh, all the color solved. on each of the sides. Yeah, okay, solved. yes, that makes sense. Yes, 
But the story of the Rubik's Cube begins six years earlier than the 80s, in 1974, with Hungarian architect professor Erno, get this, Rubik. (laughs) It really was his cube. (laughs) (laughs) Or was it the cubes that we met along the way? Oh, stop it. He wrote a book called Cubed, The Puzzle of Us All. (laughs) (laughs) which is so him and uh this came out september of last year 2020 what hot information oh my god i know i had no idea this book existed because quarantine hit and he was like time for me to write a book (laughs) (laughs) kind of well because we were all social distancing and he was Mm -hmm. like oh my god like let me write a book about this relationship with the cube or something. I don't know. Anyway, uh, he's a silly man <laughs> because uh-huh. in an interview with the New York Times about his book, he said, I'm very close to the cube. The cube was growing up next to me, and right now it's middle-aged, so I know a lot about it. God. <laughs> Come on, anthropomorphic. Okay. <laughs> Uh, in his book also, and trying to understand the nature of the cube itself, that's like was his original intention for writing it, um, he actually changed his perspective to, like I said, understand the relationship of the cube to people and why it got so popular so fast and why people are so fascinated by this little, you know, yeah. colorful rotating object. Wow. So it kind of explores that a little bit in his book. Weird. Yeah. It's also fun. Yeah. I think yeah. it was his like way of, you know... I'm trying to understand this cube, but, like, I've been with this cube for so long, so, like, let me actually understand who's using the cube. (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) Uh, Because he thought that the cube would appeal to, like, mathematicians and scientists. Mm -hmm. But instead, it just appealed to everyone. Don't we all? (laughs) (laughs) According to your dating apps. (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) How did it all begin? Erno Rubik was born July 13th, 1944, great year. As a child, he liked to draw, paint, and sculpt. He studied architecture at university and became fascinated with geometric shapes. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> he would describe his room as the inside of a child's pocket, which means that there were crayons, scraps of paper, and string just strewn about everywhere. When he was in college. When he was 29. (laughs) (laughs) I've met a few of those. (laughs) Read them. Also from the dating apps? Uh, No. Oh. I was like, let's tell Laura about you visiting boys' rooms. No. Um, Oh, and something else that was strewn about his room? Cubes. Naturally. (laughs) Of all sizes and varieties? I'm not joking. He had cubes everywhere in his room. Cubes that he made or like... Yes, out of paper and wood. This is a strange fascination. He's, he's a weird, a weird man. He just loves geometry and he loves shapes. It it served him well, I guess. It really did, except for not entirely well because oh. he actually didn't make a lot of money off of the Rubik's cube. The intrigue. That's why he had to write a book. That's the real tea. <laughs> so, at 29 years old, as he is now with his childhood bedroom, in 1974, one day that spring, he decided to put eight of his wooden cubes together for himself. <laughs> but fun. also, for his students, I hear there's, like, some drama because I think original accounts of this were that he created the cube to teach his students about geometry and about, like, moving shapes because his thing was that it's cool to have a solid object that's also free-flowing. Oh, okay. So he was... That's what the early accounts were. 
later, I think in his book and also in the New York Times article that I read, it was more about he just like put cubes together because he just did it. He was like, oh, this looks kind of, you know, yeah. cool or whatever. Let me put it together. Oh, wait, let's rotate them it around each other. It was for him. It was his hobby. Like, And that makes more sense because yeah. that's exactly what he wanted to do. <laughs> the first uh, iteration of this cube was not very good. One, <laughs> it's not a cube <laughs> because what? it's he only took eight squares. <laughs> that's still a cube. <laughs> I <laughs> I didn't know why you'd paused for a second because <laughs> I didn't know where you were going. So I thought you were going to say like eight cubes, but something else. <laughs> I never said I was the smartest. Um, geometry actually was my worst subject, but I it thrived in calculus. Too. I don't know why because it's just shapes, but. I, I think it. I think it is a thing. I think. I think either you're like good at applied math or you're good at geometry. <laughs> yeah, and I was not good at geometry. Geometry made no sense to me. Anyway, I'm sorry. <laughs> that was a square. It's kind of complicated. Okay. Uh-huh. Like the history is never exactly what people write it as. But I read that he put eight right. wooden cubes together. A Obviously, cube. that doesn't make sense because now it's three by three by three. So somehow it went through a lot of iterations and designs, and he eventually created something. Uh, and wanted to be able to see the movement, so he drilled holes into the wooden cubes so that they could rotate around each other Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. I don't know how exactly he did it. There was really no explanation of that. Mm -hmm. And because he was, like, twisting them and stuff, he was like, I want to know where the cubes are going. I want to be able to see the movement happening. So that's when he colored each of the sides. Mm -hmm. And the colors that he used were yellow, green, red, blue, orange, and white, which... Are the colors today? I was gonna say that's it's the same. It's the same colors, Unless you yeah. Get, like specialty ones, but the like the classic Rubik's cube. Exactly. Unless yeah. there are themed cubes or yeah. whatever. <laughs> he loves to say that he didn't invent this cube, that he discovered it, which makes a lot of sense because he just took his cubes and put them together. <laughs> um when he started to play with it with the colors, he was just twisting it and twisting it to see where the colors went. And then he realized what he had done. He wrote in his book, there was no way back. (laughs) He realized at that moment, actually, that he had created a puzzle. (laughs) Because before, he was just like, I'm going to put these cubes together and rotate them around and see where it goes. Mm -hmm. It was then that he realized, oh, no, how do I put the colors back? (laughs) Yeah. Wow. So then he would spend the next month trying to solve it. Because you have to remember, he's the first person to ever do this. Yeah. So there weren't the tricks and tips that we have right, today. Right. He was literally just like trying things to get it back, and it took him one month to do that. Wow. Uh, in... I mean, I've never solved a Rubik's cube, so you know, it's okay. Have <laughs> <laughs> you? Yes, actually. Okay. <laughs> Fun little story. Um, I was that kid. It's like I'm so I get secondhand cringe. That wait. I remember this. I asked you if you've ever done it. I remember you telling me what what you're about to say. Go ahead. (laughs) That in freshman year of high school, I would play it in class and get yelled at by teachers. It was a two-week phenomenon. It only lasted for two weeks, parents. I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, But it's really... I get a lot of cringe from it because how dare you play your Rubik's Cube cube in class? Like, you think you're... You were were not alone. There were many kids at my high school who did that, too. I know, but, like, just play it at recess if you're really going to be that much of of a nerd. No, you have to do it in class because class is too easy. So you're gonna do your <laughs> Rubik's cube. It's boring. <laughs> <laughs> ah, ah! <laughs> um, 
he wrote in his book about uh when he was trying to solve it that uh people described it like i said earlier people loved to like um spin a narrative in his first uh, thing to sell the cube and they said that he spent like uh the entire month sequestered in his room spending day and night trying to solve this cube but in reality he was like going to teach because <laughs> he was a professor yeah. he was going to hang out with his friends he was going to like restaurants and stuff mm -hmm. and then in his free time he would mess with the no, cube he was quarantined and did the cube the yes come on <laughs> 80s quarantine actually it was the 70s and when he finally solved this cube he felt a great sense of accomplishment and utter relief, is what he wow. also said. He filed for a patent, <laughs> patent, <laughs> and in 1977, Magic Cube was released in Hungary, and Hungary only for three years because of the Iron Curtain. We love it. Even though it was just in Hungary, though, the it actually sold surprisingly well the first two years at 300,000 units. That's pretty good. So that shows you, like, even in one country, this is popular. Mm -hmm. um, but that was nothing compared to the sales of the 80s. Because this is an 80s object, after all, and that's when it <laughs> truly gained its notoriety. <laughs> Rubik got a contract with an American toy company, Ideal Toy, who <laughs> flew Rubik to New York to uh, attend a toy fair in 1980. We've heard toy fairs at least we three have. times on this we, podcast. Very popular. It was the way you got your toy out yeah. back in the day. Uh, it wasn't long before it released under the new name, Rubik's Cube. Wow. They just really wanted you to know that it was his. And it was a cube. And that it was a cube, in case yeah. you were confused. Well, that was important to him. We know that. He loved cubes. Yeah. <laughs> in the first three years, when the toy was on the market in the 80s, it sold 100 million copies. Oh, my God. In three years in the 80s. Wow. Crazy. Also, at this time, too, it became a whole phenomenon. Many books were written about it. One of the first ones uh, being in 1981, just a year after release, at this point, many people thought that the cube was impossible to solve. That's why there was so much mm. fascination about it, because mm -hmm. people didn't really know, like, the algorithms to get it back to square one. Mm -hmm. And a 12-year-old, Patrick Bossert, Bossert, wrote a book called You Can Do the Cube, which I like to think of as very motivational. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> giving a step-by-step -step process. Ted talk. Uh, yeah. You can do the cube. You too can do this cube. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so in this book, he gave tips on how to solve it and like what he learned on how to solve it, which is crazy. Only one year after it was re released mm -hmm. in America, which maybe Patrick Bossert is Hungarian. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But my impression was that he was not of at least some international. Yeah, but I'm, I if they sold that many units in the first year, I'm, it was like a craze. So people were obsessed with it, you know. So yeah, I'm sure guides like that came out quickly. I believe it. Yeah, I guess that's true. It just like to think of like how publishing works. Like mm -hmm. it really went so quick mm -hmm. to be able to write this book, publish it, and you know, uh, uh, print it, <laughs> distribute it, <laughs> distribute it, print it, sell. Yeah, yeah okay. Mm -hmm. There was so many things. Uh, and he sold 1.5 million copies of that book. Good for you, 12-year-old. Probably went to his parents or his college fund. Other solution books came out, and even philosophers, like I said, were talking about the cube, how such a simple toy could be so complex. Yeah. Rumors. <laughs> <laughs> Rumors started coming out that he was the richest man in Hungary 
Which makes sense, but like I said earlier, that just wasn't true! Rubik didn't see many royalties at all, and he got no salary from the company, so really he was just living off of his $200 a month professor salary. Isn't that stupid? Wow. Three, yeah. or not three, 100 million things are being sold, yeah. and you're essentially seeing a, the bare minimum of it. Yeah, so did the, the toy company that bought it, did they buy out his patent? Then? They must have, yeah. yeah. Well, I think I think it was that, um, or someone else said that it could have been that he uh, sold over like the um, whatever another term for commission rights is, yeah, whatever like that is that you like yeah. then don't receive the thing back on it, or you oh. receive a little bit of it but you don't get all of it, yeah. So, yeah, um, in his book also, because of the popularity, he describes how the cube loves attention, but he does not. <laughs> <laughs> he was a, a little old man who just wanted to be a professor and play with his cubes. Mm -hmm. That attention didn't last, though. The New York Times published an article in 1986 stating that the cube was a bright meteor that burned out. Oh, wow. What a takedown. <laughs> <laughs> Savage. <Yeah. laughs> it's like a half compliment. <laughs> sort of, yeah. Yeah. In the 90s, though, the Cube had a resurgence with pop culture, such as the Spice Girls music video, oh. Viva Forever, <laughs> also Armageddon, The Simpsons, The Wedding Singer, and many, many more. Wow. Also in the 2000s, so many things had the Rubik's Cube. Like, we just mm -hmm. watched Wally. -E, and oh, yeah. he plays with the Rubik's Cube. It's just like little, you know, because it was so iconic yeah. that like, of course, people. So it's still popular, you know, it, mm -hmm. because people can still see it today. Um, the thing that has also kept the Rubik's Cube popular today is speed running competitions <laughs> uh, and new records every year. Uh, and the world record as of right now is 3.47 seconds. <laughs> oh, my God. Set by Yu Sheng Du. In 2018. Wow. Yeah, three point, like, how? I, that's crazy. I, I do remember there was always, I don't remember who it was, but I remember there was always, like, one kid in my high school who would solve it with one hand and would, like, flick the sides back and forth oh, as quick as they God. could. <laughs> it was like they were, like, showing off the, how quickly they could solve it. But it wasn't that fast. It was, like, I don't know, like a minute or two or something. Yeah, but see, yeah. that that was the the thing about it was that, yeah. like, oh, my God, I can solve it the fastest in this school. Right. I can solve it, like, the fastest out of my friends. But now you know? it's because you can look up all those things that are, like, seven simple tricks to solving your Rubik's Cube or things right. like that. Yeah. Well, that's how I, I learned it in high school was that it was just, like, the series of steps, yeah. like, with the algorithms. Like, you do the up da, 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 to, like, change one color from here to here. So then you, like, just memorize all of those so that you know how to move all the colors around on all the sides. Mm -hmm. That's, yeah. Um, there are also crazy ways that people have solved the Rubik's Cube. It's been solved underwater, blindfolded, which, mind you, there are people who are blind. Blindfolded meaning that there's no braille on the cube. It's just they look at the cube once, mm. see all the mixed up colors, put a blindfold on, and then solve it. Memorizing whatever the colors were. Oh, that freaks me out. Or, or they memorized the sequence that they needed to do. Well, both. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. people do a sequence that they need to solve it. Everyone does yeah. that, even the speed cubers. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I was just saying, you, you said look at it once and then, like, remember where everything was. 
Right. But but more likely it's because they like memorized the sequence that they have to do. So they don't even have to see it to solve it. Right. So everyone knows the sequence. Like that's just the thing. You just like learn it or whatever. But the memorizing exactly where all... I don't know. I can't do the math right now. Three by three by three <laughs> amount, like nine on yeah. each side. It's, it's like an added obstacle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Chu Jianyu solved three while juggling. Oh I know. I had that. My pronunciation. I tried really hard. I listened to it a million times. Much better than I could ever do it. Anyway, um, okay. <laughs> he juggled three. He was on Asia's Got Talent. Uh, Sankavi Rathan uh, did 30 rubik's cubes in less than an hour <laughs> while hula hooping with one hand this is just a one-man circus <laughs> it oh really was and uh she's 11 <laughs> a, a one child circus a one child circus yeah. yeah and she did that uh august 1st 2020 wow that's how relevant the it's rubik's cube is quarantine you know people are just so bored <laughs> She had nothing to do but hula hoop she, and yeah. Rubik's Cube. <laughs> exactly. Perfect her, her craft. Now, before I finish, I have a quick controversy to discuss because turns out that Rubik might not be the, you know, first person to ever invent the Rubik's Cube. I discovered this five minutes before the podcast is breaking news <laughs> because I was like, you know, let me, I always try to do this where I read the Wikipedia page last mm-hmm. just in case there's yeah. something because I try to use like other sources or whatever. And of course there was something really important that I'm asked in 1957, 17 years before the Rubik's cube, Larry Nichols envisioned a two by two by two rotating cube as a puzzle. So his intention of his was a puzzle. Mm-hmm. He filed a patent for it, made models, but it never took off like the mm. Rubik's Cube. Rubik's Cube comes out. Nichols sues Ideal Toy Company, um, and he loses against the Rubik's Cube because it was three by three by three. But they did come out with a version called the Pocket Cube, which was two by two by two. Mm-hmm. And he won the court thingy. Again, for the Pocket Cube Against rights, the Pocket whatever. Cube yeah. rights. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, so that's that's it. Wow. Yes. Uh, so interesting. Thank you, Rubik, <laughs> for your cube and my attention span in ninth grade geometry. All right, Josh, I'm going to tell you about MTV today. Oh, my God, my childhood. (laughs) Trashy shows on early 2000s MTV. You got it. We're going to go all the way there to the early 2000s. But we're going to start in the 80s. Yay! (laughs) Okay, so. (laughs) Okay. Before MTV... There were after-school specials, there were variety programs, but there was not a lot of TV specifically meant for young people. Um, There were also videos of musicians singing their songs, but not really like how we know it today. Like there are videos of like the Beatles singing It's a Hard Day's Night and things like that, but they weren't necessarily like music videos the way that we now know them. Um, So that brings us to Michael Nesmith. Nesmith, who was a member of the band The Monkees. He had started making video clips for other, I think for one of his own songs and then also for a couple of other bands. And it led him to the idea of a TV program strictly dedicated to playing music videos. He called this show Pop Clips that he developed. 
He called this show Pop Clips uh, that he developed in 1979. Uh, but the problem was that no one would buy it. TV executives were like, that'll never work. It it, it doesn't make sense for television. <laughs> Joke's on them. Joke's on them. It really is. Um, so Michael went to talk to a man named John Lack, who would come to be a future MTV co-founder. Um, and at the time, he was running a news radio station through Warner Bros, or like the Warner Company. Um, when Michael approached him with the Pop Clips idea. So Lack loved the idea, and Pop Clips was purchased and began playing on the Nickelodeon channel in 1980, and people loved it. So it was like the precursor. I know. One, it was on Nickelodeon, and there was like a precursor to MTV. (laughs) I just love that MTV got its start on Nickelodeon. It did. I know. I think Nickelodeon was probably like different in 1980, but I didn't research Nickelodeon, so I don't know. <laughs> Even tell if it you. wasn't, though, just music videos, like... Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So that brings us to December of 1980 in New York City. <laughs> the idea of a channel devoted entirely to music and music videos was still being developed, and so a meeting was had with the big wigs at Warner Communication to convince them that the numbers made sense to create such a thing. They agreed that, yeah, it does make sense. Let's try it. And Warner decided to launch a 24-hour all-music cable TV channel to later be named MTV. (laughs) Uh, So they brought in a whole team to develop the channel, focusing on people who didn't have experience in television, but instead with music and radio. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. Um, They spent a lot of time designing the logo. They didn't want obvious references to music or musical instruments. Um, So they went through a lot of different options, and they finally found one that they liked. A large M with a scratched-in, handwritten TV within it. So it's like the classic MTV logo that we all know at this point. Yes. Yeah. Um, So the design company that they used uh, colored like a bunch of different versions with different colors and prints and designs. And they decided to use all of them to show that they are constantly in motion, willing to change, and forward-moving, leading to the iconic flashing MTV logo with all different colors and designs. They literally said, why not all? They really That's kind of like the whole way that this channel started was a bunch of people just saying, yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> do, do whatever. Epilepsy? Why not? <laughs> well, it makes sense because it was led by like a bunch of young people and they wanted to like do something really different and sort different of Different and fun and cool. Yeah. Exactly. And they knew that they were making television for a young audience. So they wanted to show that they were like always going to be forward moving and always going with what was like new and hot and exciting for the time and that showed through their logo yeah (laughs) um so they hired vjs or video jockeys (laughs) instead of djs interesting that's what they were called uh, terminology (laughs) unfamiliar um they were hired to host the show Uh, they were on camera and the original five were Nina Blackwood, Mark Goodman, Alan Hunter, J.J. Jackson, and Martha Quinn. So the idea for the astronaut, which Josh and I were just talking about. Uh, off air. Off air. Uh, came from the need for an opening segment, like a TV show theme song um, to sort of like introduce the channel that it was coming on. Or like the Disney channel, like bum, 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 bum. Thing. They just needed like a bumper. Yes. Yeah. I um, love the Disney Channel outtakes <laughs> where they like they follow the actual line yes. that the actors draw. <laughs> I know. So MTV wanted to use something that was really big, something that everyone would remember and immediately recognize. And one of their options <laughs> was Lee Harvey Oswald assassinating JFK. 
<laughs> but they were like, maybe not. We're going to, that doesn't seem like Someone so put that on the table. Please yeah. tell me it was Martha. Martha it was no. like. <laughs> it wasn't any, it wasn't any of the VJs. Oh. <laughs> yeah. But someone was like, it's iconic and everybody knows about it. And that's what we want to be the intro. But they very wisely decided to not use that. Oh my um, God. I wish they would have used it even for one month. <laughs> no, they didn't. Um, what they did realize was that all video footage from NASA was in the public domain so they could use it for free. It was something that everyone was aware of and everyone would recognize that being the landing on the moon in, in 1969. So they decided to have the footage of the astronaut, like real footage from the landing. Uh, when he plants the flag, that it would be the MTV flag instead of the U.S. flag. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and it ended up being, like, hugely iconic. Yeah. Well, the reason yeah. I brought it up off air yeah. <laughs> was because I was like, oh, my gosh, because you were talking about forward thinking mm-hmm. and kind of that stuff. And I was like, that makes sense because what, like, that was so forward thinking. It's like, let's go where no man has gone before. Exactly. Yeah. It all it all worked in their favor mm-hmm. going with <laughs> astronaut imagery. <laughs> so... It's August 1st, 1981. The Mm. channel launches, initially only available in parts of New Jersey. It wasn't even available in Manhattan, which is, like, where the, 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 like, offices of Warner were. Were the Fogelmans in New Jersey at this point? No, not in the 80s. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, So the shuttle launch countdown was played up until the midnight channel launch. So, like, video footage of the shuttle. Um, the intro was played, and you heard, ladies and gentlemen, rock and roll, and the very first music video ever played on MTV, Video Killed the Radio Star, by the Buggles, played, followed by Pat Benatar's You Better Run, and she was the uh, first female artist ever on MTV, which makes sense because she was the second video. The second video. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, and during this first broadcast, the screen would sometimes go black when an employee would start a new tape in the VCR. <laughs> Speaking of the 80s. Oh my God. I know. I just, I love that uh, video killed the radio star. Of course that makes sense. Isn't it? It's It's so iconic. It's so pointed. It makes sense. It's a jam. It's on my like workout playlist. Like I love that song and I, yeah, I didn't know this. It was so smart. Wow. Yeah. Um, So when they first started, the VJs would read off of a teleprompter to introduce videos in a studio that was made to sort of look like a living room of sorts or like a New York City apartment. There was a lot of brick, but it looked like somebody's home, kind of. Mm -hmm. Um, But this didn't seem very rock and roll to people. So they got rid of scripts and stage directions (sighs) and just let people do whatever they wanted. Oh, not the chaos. (laughs) Well, audiences saw everything that happened in the studio, every mess up, and people loved it because it was like, it was unlike anything else. Everything was was so scripted. Exactly. Yeah. And this was literally just like, all the disc disc jockeys, video jockeys were like (laughs) young people who really liked rock and roll and they were playing music videos and it was just like fun and different and kind of wild. So it was... Very popular. Um, In the early days, they kind of played whatever they could get music video-wise, whether it was bad or good, um, because it was still a really small station, and music videos were still kind of a new concept. Not very many people were making them, at least not in the United States. So many record companies in America didn't think that MTV would have any success, and they didn't want to make music videos at their own cost. So most of the music videos that MTV played early on came from Europe, where record companies were already making short promo films for their artists to be played on video jukeboxes, 
which was a popular new piece of technology at the time. Leave it to oh, Europe. <laughs> I know. Um, so to start with, uh, they really only had 250 music videos uh, in total. I think that was like the first year being played over a 24-hour period. So there were a lot of repeats, which meant that the early artists of MTV got a lot of exposure. Oh, yeah. Thanks to all of that repetition and desperation on MTV's part mm, for content. Yes. Um, so this was actually described as a second British invasion through MTV because it was the British artists with music videos who were getting all of the exposure. Wow. Yeah, I know. The influence. Uh, it really, though. And that brings us to MTV's heyday. So in the beginning, like their first year, MTV wasn't doing great financially. Um, as we talked about, American Record Studios didn't really want to make music videos in the first place, but they also didn't want to pay to play their artists on the channel. Um, and other cable stations didn't see the value in the channel and wouldn't air it. So MTV brought in Les Garland. He had done an ad for a product called Maypo, where the catchphrase was, I want my Maypo. They decided to take that phrase and try to get celebrities to say, I want my MTV to endorse the station and convince people to, like, pick it up and play it on their local cable mm -hmm. stations. So Les Garland had a personal connection to Mick Jagger mm -hmm. and went to try and convince him to say the slogan. Jagger and his team said for something that was sort of like an ad, it would help for them to do it if they were getting paid. Garland explained that the station had no money, mm -hmm. put a dollar bill on the table, and said, I'll pay you a dollar to do it. And Jagger agreed to do the ad spot <laughs> for a dollar. He's they... like, I, like I said, as long as I get <laughs> right, paid. exactly. And he got paid. He got his money, baby. Oh, my God. Come a on. dollar. Yes. And um, they also got Pete, Pete Townsend of The Who to say the phrase. And after two such large artists agreed, they th the thought was that no other artist could say, I'm too good to do it. And they were right. Wow. They got people like Pat Benatar, David Bowie, Cyndi Lauper, and so many, like the list is endless wow. of people who filmed like little tiny ad spots of them saying, I want my MTV. Um, so they created ads using all of these clips and they bought airtime on other networks and would list the number for people to call their local cable provider and ask that MTV be aired. And it worked. Within a week, they had cable stations calling them, asking them to stop airing the ad because they were getting so many calls. And MTV started airing nationwide. <laughs> oh, my God. I know. There's uh, So I watched a, a documentary about this and one of the quotes was... They made the idea of MTV go viral before anyone really knew what viral was. That is exactly right. Yeah. That's yeah. a good way of putting it. Yeah, it was. <laughs> okay, everyone listening, go on your Instagram and say, I want my thingamabob. <laughs> Call all of your podcast hosting networks and tell them. <laughs> I'm going to fill like a mugshot, Phil, Phil. I'm going to film like a mugshot type video uh -huh. of me. At gunpoint, <laughs> saying, thing Oh, God. <laughs> okay, so suddenly everyone wants to be on MTV. Uh, the once extremely localized cable TV station blew up. They became instrumental in promoting the careers of artists like Madonna, Michael Jackson, Prince, Cyndi Lauper, and countless more. Before MTV, your audience as a performer from, like, a visual perspective 
was limited to people who came to your concerts. Mm-hmm. Like people are buying your albums, but they're not seeing you. So they don't have that same sort of recognition. That's true. But suddenly you had national and international audiences who could recognize your face from these videos, which before MTV may not have been the case. It totally changed how artists grew their fame and interacted with their fan bases. This was really cool. It like really like built people's careers. Yeah. MTV, however, was notably called out by David Bowie in an interview for not playing enough black artists. And because of this, they began actively pursuing black artists to be on the station and they started aiming at getting Michael Jackson on. So before David Bowie, they had been spoken to before about, like, why aren't you playing more black artists? And their reasoning was like, well, they're not really, like, rock and roll, and we only play rock and roll, and they count as, like, R&B or soul. or It was, like, a whole thing. I only mentioned David Bowie because, of course, people only listen to, like, other white people when, when it's an issue of race. And in this interview that was not about this, David Bowie was like, I actually have a question for you. Why aren't you playing more black artists? And it was very cool. So I think... I don't know if you can find just the interview on YouTube, but uh, if you can, I would encourage you to look it up. It was, <laughs> I don't have a ton of details on the dates, but I feel like it'd be pretty easy to find. Or you can watch the a documentary that I linked in our show notes. Wow. Yeah. Um, anyways, because of this conversation, they were like, you're right, we got to fix this. And so they were uh, looking at getting Michael Jackson to Uh, bring his music onto MTV. Um, So they asked for a video for Beat It because it had a rock guitar solo from Eddie Van Halen, which means it's like very rock and roll. Uh, And instead, CBS Records sent them Billie Jean. So while they believed that Billie Jean was not rock and roll, they played the video anyways because they had asked for Michael Jackson and the video was new and it was different. So they're like, okay, why not? We're going for this. Uh, The video was a huge success and led Uh. to MTV partnering with Michael Jackson to be the first to premiere the Thriller music video in 1983. This brought MTV a massive rise in viewership and success. Oh, this is all so early. It really was because it didn't launch until 1981. Yeah. at this point in the documentary, so much had happened that I like couldn't even include, and it had really only been like two years. Wow. Yeah, I know it's it's crazy. Um, so 1984 brought the first ever Video Music Awards. Uh, Dan Aykroyd and Bette Midler hosted the event at Radio City Music Hall. Ah! I know. Uh, Madonna performed at the very first VMAs, and it was she described. She she really would. I mean, she owes a lot of her career to like being featured on. MTV so much. Um, but they <laughs> described her performance as being akin to the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Which I just thought was funny. Because it was like a, a big deal for the Beatles to perform live oh, on television. I thought visually. No, no, no. I was like, in what <laughs> <No>. way? <laughs> no, in the way of it like being a big deal. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Fair. Yeah. Come on, Ed Sullivan. <laughs> um, so by the late 1980s, MTV had started airing non-video programming. Um, The rise in popularity of hip-hop led to the creation of Yo! MTV Raps in 1988. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Sure. Um, The show didn't have a ton of backing behind it because record executives didn't think that it would be successful. Once again, they were like, we don't think hip-hop is where it's at. Stop underestimating MTV. They really are. So they, But they agreed to air the show. However, they slotted it for 2 (laughs) a.m., when the show was going to premiere. The joke is on them, though, because when it did premiere, it became the highest rated show ever on MTV. People loved it. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yes. Stay up. 
It's all the night owls. <laughs> it it's you. It's me, exactly. Me in the 80s watching Yo! MTV raps. <laughs> me in the 80s. Me in the 80s. Um, now in 1987, uh, again, only like six years after it started, there were a lot of changes that came to MTV when three of the original uh, VJs were fired and the rest quickly quit after. Uh, Warner sold MTV to Viacom and the co-founders lost their creative control. So they sold their stakes in the channel and left. So like the entire original team, I I believe, is gone at this point, wow. like six years 87? later. Uh, yeah, 1987. Wow. Yeah, I know. So technically seven years since they like started putting it together. But, but since, since the it channel, premiered. Yeah. Um, hmm. MTV became much more of a business and less about rock and roll. And they initially lost a lot of revenue and viewership. So they decided to change things up, thinking that maybe the format of 24-7 music videos wasn't working so well anymore. And then in 1992, the real world premiered. So (laughs) (laughs) the show was a huge hit, and the reality television boom began sort of spearheaded by MTV. Of course. Um, So they put out iconic shows, uh, including things like Teen Mom, 16 and Pregnant, The Real World, Are You the One, Jersey Shore, uh. The Hills, Punked, MTV Cribs, My Super Sweet 16, Jackass, TRL, and so many others. The list goes on and on and on. Between MTV and VH1, which copied MTV, as we are understanding, mm-hmm. in those reality shows. I, th- I think they're um, owned by the same company. I think VH1 and MTV are like oh, well, there you go. sister networks. Yeah. Between those two, it built us. Those reality TV shows really really built our generation. It really did. And now MTV is much more focused on reality television programming than it is on, like, music video releases. Because with the rise of, like, the internet and YouTube, that is where people go to watch music videos now. Yeah. There was, like, a whole section on um, the band OK Go releasing their music video on YouTube when it was, like brand new Mm -hmm. and it blew up on youtube without needing to go through any other sort of company i don't remember the name of the song but i know i've i know i know the song and i know i've seen the video it's them like doing a dance on four treadmills and then they like here we go again yes Uh, yeah i think that's the one i think so yeah i didn't write it down because i wasn't going to talk about it close to that (laughs) if that's not right yeah, so they sort of moved away from music videos because music videos were moving to a digital platform instead of uh, traditional media. And so MTV sort of turned into what it is now, which is uh, still good, in my opinion, just very different than its origins. Entertaining. Yes, exactly. Um, and that's the history that I have for you, except for just two fun little fun facts, <laughs> as always. I love fun facts. Um, so Hans Zimmer worked with the Buggles and briefly appeared in the Video Killed the Radio Star music video. He was playing the synthesizer. I am familiar with Hans Zimmer. Yeah, Hans Zimmer is one of our favorite composers. We are beloved. <laughs> and he's in the Video Killed the Radio Star music video, which oh is my fun. God. Um, and then the melody for I Want My MTV that we know and love comes from the song Money for Nothing by Dire Straits, who, of course, had their music video play on MTV. It was one of the first to use computer-animated human characters, and when MTV launched in Europe in 1987, Money for Nothing was the first video played. Wow, I only know that because of Money for Nothing, to be honest. The the tune? Uh, yeah. I didn't realize it was from an actual song that, oh. like, wasn't affiliated 
with MTV. Yes. I thought I thought it was like created by MTV for their ads. I wouldn't be surprised that even either, even though it's the dire straits. Yeah. Like if they were like, Hey, can you write something for our channel? That's literally yeah, that's what I thought. But, but I, the song is like a like very personal. Like when they yeah. get past the I want my MTV part. Well, and what I read from it is that the song they wrote it because uh the lead singer or the writer of the song was like kind of against music videos. <laughs> and he, he was like, I just see people like tuning into MDB to see what's next and like clicking through all the different music videos. And I think that's how their actual music video starts. But it's also computer animated because he didn't want to be in it. He was like, I don't like music videos. I don't want to be in it. And so they animated it. But like it all it all worked out for them in the end. Wow. Yeah. And that's MTV. Ah. Uh- Wow. I know. That definitely was interesting. It was fun. It is crazy how people are like, you know what? Let's change everything and Mm -hmm. do. I have this unique idea. And then, like, it really takes off despite, like, people not picking up on it. Right. And also, this made me think of, too, why, like, it's just impossible these days to get a brand new network. Mm -hmm. Everything that you pitch has to be picked up by one of the, like, giant conglomerates. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's so crazy that they built, like, this network they had to go to warner brothers yes and then they had to go to viacom but still yeah but at at the time there were only like three major networks right so it was easier to get something like this started but you're right now there's like a million different networks and and streaming services and things like that so it is a little harder to like build something from the ground up because unless youtube everything already exists (laughs) yeah yeah Wow, thanks, Bree. You're welcome. And thank you all so much for listening. If you have any theme suggestions for us, you can send them over to thingamabobpodcast at gmail.com or slide into our DMs on Instagram at thingamabobpodcast or on Twitter at thingamabobpod. While you're there, give us a follow and please subscribe to our show on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Please leave us a review. It really (laughs) helps us show up in the iTunes charts and new and recommended page. We're still new. (laughs) We we are. We're we're still new. (laughs) Um, Make sure to join us next week where Bree and I LARP it out and talk about weapons. For those of you that don't know, that's live action role play. And Thank you for joining us because now we are all two things smarter. Bye.